Good morning, everyone. It is uh, it's always good to be back in this pulpit. Uh, thank you so much for inviting Carly. I brought my sidekick with me this morning. Carly's in the back there. So thanks for inviting us back to a place and to a people whom we love and who have cared for us for a long, long time. You know, I went back and I checked, and over the years, I must have preached at least 50 Advent and and Christmas sermons, both from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. And so, you know, you naturally ask yourself this time of year, what else is there to preach on? Uh, Well, there's a lot to preach on. You know, the Bible is inexhaustible. And even though you might not initially think to look there, we find the Christmas story actually in the book of Revelation. In our text for this morning, which was just read to us by Elder Mike Pixley. So I'm not going to reread that text. So if you would just open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12, we're going to go through that chapter this morning. And after we pray, we're going to take a look at this remarkable, remarkable Christmas story. So please pray with me. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill be made low. The crooked shall be made straight, the rough places plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. So as I said, you may not, I think, see it at first, But what we have in this marvelous text, Revelation chapter 12, it's actually a cosmic vision. It's a heaven's eye view, if you will, of the very first Christmas. You know, uh, we're in the heavenly situation room there. It says that in verse 1. We're in the command and control center. Uh, We're with the commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And just envision with me, if you will, we we see before us this array of big computer screens. Each one of those screens is providing a different degree of detail in real time of the entire theater of war on earth. Now, the first screen that we take a look at here is, is of a satellite image. It offers this macro-level perspective. A total view of the war below from 35,000 feet, so to speak. And the next screen offers a live feed, if you will, from a drone flying overhead. Now it's still, it's still a large scale perspective, but now we can see it in more detail, all the elements that were only suggested when we looked at that satellite image from 35,000 feet. And it's very interesting, if you go on and, uh, and read Revelation 13, which we don't have time for this morning, it's actually a view of the body uh, cameras on the soldiers that are fighting the battle in earth. So you'll have to read Revelation 13 yourself. So in Revelation 12, we're in the heavenly situation room. We're looking at these two screens with the commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, is the widest possible lens. It gives us the big picture and outline, if you will. It's the satellite view of history. 
Then in the rest of the chapter, verses 7 through 17, we see another large-scale view, but it's in more detail. That's the second screen. That's the view from the drone. Now we understand the same scene, but we see it with much more clarity. And in this chapter, we witness, through these two views, this cosmic spiritual combat, if you will, the conflict in which Christ and his church are engaged throughout history. And we're introduced to the main characters in this combat. So let's take a look. First, this satellite satellite view. So take a look there at verses 1 through 6. We're introduced here to the main uh, actors, as I say. The scene in verses 1 through 6 is in heaven. The apostle John sees this woman. She's gloriously arrayed. The sun is her garment, the moon her footstool. She She has a crown of 12 stars, it says there in the text. She's about to give birth to a child. She cries out because she's in labor. And suddenly John sees standing in front of this woman a fiery red dragon. It's enormous. So big, in fact, that its tail lashing out across the sky sweeps away one-third of the stars of heaven, flings them to earth. The dragon is standing in front of the woman in order to devour her child as soon as it's born. But he doesn't succeed. The woman gives birth to a son, a male child, a mighty one, who John says is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Then suddenly, it kind of shifts here. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, it says in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So that's the picture there, here. You know, it's a little puzzling. So let's see if we can't figure it out. You know, there are three characters here that we need to identify. First, there's this radiant woman. Who is this woman who gives birth to a son? Well, there's a long-standing debate between Roman Catholic and Protestant interpreters of the Bible as to whether this woman is Mary, because her offspring in verse 5 seems clearly to be Jesus, or she represents the ideal church, because in the rest of the chapter she seems to occupy that role. Now, we read in verse 6, And later in verse 14, that the woman is persecuted and she flees into the wilderness. And in verse 17, her offspring are said to be the saints. So all in all, it seems that the woman is the church, the Israel of God. Now, the 12 stars on her head represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And earlier in Revelation, if we would have read that, we're told that the 12 tribes represented the church. The Reformers have always understood this woman to be God's representative of his covenant people. She represents believers over the course of time who were the remnant leading up to the birth of Christ. And it's through this remnant that Jesus was born. So I think we're pretty safe to say here with the Reformers that this woman represents God's church. Secondly, there's the child, the seed of the woman. 
This mighty child is the Christ, the Messiah. He's the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And so the question is, why does the Messiah rule not with a, not with a shepherd's staff, but with an iron club? Well, the answer is that the shepherd caring for his sheep protects them from the onslaughts of Satan. He applies the iron rod to anyone, to anyone who rises up against him. But he gathers people from all nations to himself so that they can come and worship him. And thirdly, there's the dragon. I think it's pretty clear it symbolizes Satan. You know, John doesn't leave us in any doubt as to the identity of this dragon. In verse 9, he identifies it as, as Satan or the devil, as the ancient serpent and deceiver of the world. And so here's this powerful dragon. He sits in wait before the woman, poised to devour the Christ child. Jesus is his great enemy, and the dragon wants to take him out. And so we wait with bated breath to see what's going to happen when the woman finally gives birth. But then it's it's so interesting. No sooner does John take us to Bethlehem here for the virgin birth in verse 5 than he immediately jumps to Christ's ascension. John skips right over all the other details here about Christ's earthly ministry between his birth and his ascension. Isn't that interesting? Why does he do that? Well, it's not because he wishes to minimize, you know, Christ's obedience, his sufferings on earth while he was a man, but rather he, he wants to highlight, and this is important, he wants to highlight in this particular context, Christ's kingly reign. He was caught up to God and to his throne. That's referring clearly to Jesus' ascension, which is a visible display of Christ's coronation as a victorious, conquering king. He's a king who's calling the shots, who reigns over all things from the throne of God. To use my language from the situation room, from the command and control center in heaven. And that is what he wants to emphasize here as we take a look at this satellite view. And is, I, you know, isn't that important for us to see? You know, as we take in John's depiction here of this, of this fearful dragon with its claims, you know, to, to divine authority, to absolute power. You know, don't we often miss that? You know, we can become so aware of the oppressive reality of evil that we can virtually forget at times that however things may appear to be, however things may appear to us, Jesus Christ is sovereign. Jesus Christ reigns triumphant over all. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's the truth. However things may appear to us, Though the malice of the dragon is terrible, the danger faced by the church is real, Jesus has already won. So that's the big picture, if you will. That's the satellite view, if you like. It gives us this cast of characters 
in this spiritual combat. It shows us that Christ is king, even now. Now, the rest of this chapter, verses 7 through 17, as I said, it's the live feed from the drone. And it's, it's simply another account of this same cosmic conflict, still on a grand scale, but with some more detail filled in. And I'm not going to go through this section verse by verse. It covers the same conflict as we saw in the first six verses. It's sort of an instant replay, if you will. Of verses 1 through 6. Let me just make a few brief observations about this last section. We see here at the beginning that Michael and his angels fight against Satan and his forces. You know, Daniel 10.21 tells us that Michael is the angelic defender of Israel. He's their prince. So this is just another perspective with more detail of the age-old conflict between the darkness and the light, between elect and reprobate angels, between Israel and the nations, between Christ and the devil, between the church and the world. Behind the warfare of the church against sin and evil, there is a cosmic battle in the heavenly places. It's been going on since the very beginning. You know, verse 10 tells us when Satan's defeat takes place. It says there, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is defeated now. He is thrown down now. He's defeated now. And, you know, it it is so important as Christians today that we get that straight. You know, the outcome of the cosmic conflict is not in question. Satan has been cast down. He's been defeated. You know, I, I was thinking about how I could illustrate that. You know, one of the... I think one of the bitterly tragic aspects of the Second World War was that even in its final throes, even long after it was perfectly obvious to thoughtful men that Hitler's armies had been defeated, his security forces and his secret police continued in a kind of malevolent rage and bizarre detachment from reality to wage war. They wage war on friend and foe alike. You know, the gas chambers were still full in the concentration camps. Hitler demanded that Germany herself be destroyed rather than fall into the hands of the enemy. From his bunker, issuing orders to armies that no longer existed, he demanded vengeance on his internal opposition retribution against subordinates who had failed to carry out his orders, and to the very end he dreamed of some kind of crisis among the Allies that would permit him at the last minute to to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. He was beaten. And at a certain level he certainly knew that. You know, ever since the invasion of Normandy, the ultimate outcome of the war was decided. 
But thrown into fits of rage at his defeat, he sought to bring as many others down with him as he could. Well, I think it's something like that depicted here in these verses. You know, this drone view, if you will. The defeat of Satan was decisive. It's irreversible. The, the devil knows that. We read in verse 12 that he knows that his time is short. But enraged by his defeat, he has devoted his existence to doing his best to destroy the people of God while he still has access to them and to make whatever use, however cruel, of the people of this world in his battle against the kingdom of God. You know, so much cannon fodder so far as he's concerned. You know, I think for the thoughtful Christian, this single fact that the devil is spitefully at work in this world to defeat the kingdom of God and the people of God, it explains so much that otherwise would remain inexplicable. It explains so much of the carnage going on on earth. Terrorism, ISIS, the opioid epidemic, crimes in the street, you name it. So that's with that sort of a background, these two views, let me now return to this dragon and the woman. You know, verse 4 says that the dragon stands in front of the woman who is about to deliver so that when the baby is born, he can devour it. That is, Satan is constantly aiming at the destruction of Christ. That's what he's doing. That's his aim. That's the main theme. That's the main thought here in this passage. And if you look at it like that, then not only the book of Revelation, but the entire Bible becomes just one story, the story of the conflict between the seed of the woman and the dragon, between Christ and Satan. And even though we sometimes act as if it's not true, this passage tells us that Christ is victorious in this conflict. So here's what I'd like to do. with the rest of our time this morning. I think I've done this in some uh, aspects some time that I was here, but I want to take us back in time. And I want, to, I want to highlight the wonderful providence of God in ensuring Christ's victory over Satan, even in those times when it appeared victory was impossible. It's a wonderful story. It's engaging. It's an encouraging story. So let me just sort of highlight some of these things, you know. So let me take you back to the very beginning of the Bible. To God's initial promise of Jesus' birth in Genesis 3.15. You know, right before this promise, you'll recall that Satan had tempted Adam and Eve to sin. And you remember that they did. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God had told them not to do that, that if they did, they would die. And God had come into the garden to pass judgment on them. We don't know, but I think we can imagine uh, how afraid they must have been. I'm not sure that they knew exactly what dying actually meant 
but they knew that they had done what God had told them not to do, and they must have been terrified, you know, as they waited for a punishment from God that would perfectly fit their crime. They had sinned against their Creator, and no doubt they expected sudden death, whatever that entailed. But that isn't what happened, is it? Instead of dying immediately, which is what should have happened, God instead pronounced only a token judgment on them. And even before this slap on their wrists, something even more wonderful and unexpected happened. And that's Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, God promised Adam and Eve a deliverer. He promised them a Savior. He promised Jesus, who would come from Eve and her offspring. And, and, And those words also spell out the conflict, the war that will exist throughout history between Satan and the woman between his offspring and her offspring, between himself and her great descendant, Jesus. Now, the words of the promise and the conflict are, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And you see, Revelation 12 is clearly based on this important verse. You know, we find the same characters in both. We find the same exact truth is proclaimed in both. The serpent of Genesis 3, that's the dragon of Revelation 12. Now here in Genesis 3, the earthly battle is joined between Christ and Satan. This is where it all begins. So let's just walk through this conflict in redemptive history. Well, very shortly, children are born to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. But Cain kills Abel. Then Seth is born. And it's through him that the promised seed that the Messiah is going to come. And Satan now begins to do all in his power to destroy Seth. You remember he tells Seth's sons that they have to, that they have to marry the daughters of Cain. He tries to destroy Seth's generations in order to annihilate the promise concerning the Messiah. Does the dragon succeed? Well, it looks like he does. Genesis 6.12 says, And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Had Satan won? Well, it looked like it, but no, he had not won. Among the families that descended from Seth, there's one which feared the Lord. You know what that family was. It was the family of Noah. God saves this one family, eight people. He destroys all the rest with the flood. It's in this one family that the promise is continued. Again, the dragon stands in front of the woman in order to destroy the child. The promise concerning the Messiah is now given to Abraham and Sarah, his wife. The story is told in Genesis 18. It's summarized for us later in Hebrews 11. Humanly speaking, 
That promise was never going to be fulfilled. And you know why. Abraham was 99. Here's Sarah. She was 90. Well past the age of childbearing. Her biological clock had run out. It says in in Genesis that she had been barren all her life. Surely this is the end of the line. And the dragon has won. He's triumphed. But then you know what happened. The miracle happened. Isaac was born. The promise is now given to Isaac. But the Lord tells Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And on Mount Moriah, Abraham raised the knife to kill his son. What will now become of God's promise? Surely the dragon wins. But we know that didn't happen. Christ himself appeared in the form of an angel. He safeguarded his own birth according to the flesh. Well, time goes on. The seed that was going to crush the serpent's head would be born from the generations of Isaac and Rebekah. But there was another problem. Rebekah was also barren. Again, Jehovah, the God of the promise, performs a miracle. And Rebekah conceives so that the promise is continued in the line of Jacob. Again, the dragon stands in front of the woman. He attacks Jacob's descendants. He attacks the Jews. This time, it surely seems as if he will be successful. For though the Lord in his mercy had he'd led his people out of Egypt, they rejected him, and what did they do? They start dancing around a golden calf. As we would expect, Yahweh was not amused. He said to Moses, let me alone that I may consume them. Is this the end? Has Elvis left the building? Is the dragon actually going to win? He is, unless there's an intercessor. And there was. Moses intercedes and the promise is saved again. Again, redemptive history moves on. Out of the tribe of Judah, God chooses one family, that of David. The promised Messiah will be born of the seed of David. So what happens now? The dragon now aims his arrow at David. David has to be destroyed. First Samuel 18 says, And a spear was in Saul's hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. And we're told in First Samuel that Saul did this because an evil spirit had come upon him. It was the dragon. Did the dragon succeed? No. Because the text says that David escaped from Saul's presence not once, but he escaped twice. Well, we move on. A very obscure little passage. Second Kings 11. Athaliah. You probably never heard. Athaliah was the wicked daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. She's reigning. She's the queen in Judah. So that she may have absolute power, she decides to kill all the seed of David. So the dragon stands in front of the woman. His wrath is directed against the child. And now finally, Satan is successful. 
At least so it seems. Second Kings 11.1 1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she's the king, the queen now, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. But she didn't get all of them. She missed one. Verse 2 says, But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So they hid him from Athaliah, and he was not put to death. That's amazing. Just It just blows me away. How marvelous is God's providence. Again, You know, the promise is saved. Christ will be born of David's line, unless the dragon can somehow prevent that. Well, we move forward in time. This goes on. And now we see the combined forces of Israel and Syria are gathered against Judah. And they wage war to blot out the house of David and to set up a foreign king in the midst of Judah. It's a critical moment in history. And the question again, will the Christ ever be born of the seed of David? It certainly doesn't look that way. You know, Jehovah orders the prophet Isaiah to go meet uh, King Ahaz of Judah to encourage him. Ahaz, however, refused to ask for a sign as a pledge of that Jehovah was going to aid him. Surely the dragon's going to be successful now because we have assembled against the house of David all these huge armies of Syria and Israel. You can almost hear Satan laughing. But again, he laughs too soon. Because we read in Isaiah 7:14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. God's purpose must stand. Emmanuel must be born from the family of David. Well, it's now the 5th century B.C. King Ahasuerus is reigning. You know the story at the request of Haman. The king issues this decree that throughout the, the kingdom, all the Jews should be put to death. And he seals this decree with his signet ring. But Jehovah's promise concerning the mediator to be born of the seed of David was sealed with the oath of the king of kings. I don't need to relate to you what happened. Read the book of Esther for yourself. The Jews again were saved. Now the final act in this mighty drama occurs. The scene is Bethlehem. There in a manger lies the Christ child. But although he's now actually been born, the dragon still tries to destroy him. You know, in fact, Revelation 12, you know, though covering with a few words the entire previous history of Satan's warfare against the Christ, Revelation 12 refers directly and specifically to the events that took place in connection with Christ's birth. Verse 4, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The wise men from the east, they're meeting with King Herod. Be sure, says Herod, 
to report to me as soon as you found the child. Why? Because I want to come and worship him. Well, we know that it, that, that isn't what he really wanted to do. His intention was to kill the child. But the wise men warned by God returned to their country another way until after they had found and worshipped Christ. And still the dragon refused to admit defeat. You remember the story. All the infants of Bethlehem and the surrounding area, two years old and under, are murdered. Herod failed, and so did the dragon. Why? You know the story, because the Christ child was safe in Egypt. Dear ones, God's purpose can never, ever be frustrated. Christ's birth in Bethlehem is God's victory over the dragon. The Savior's death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, is his further and his final victory. Verse 5, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Again, it refers to Christ's ascension and enthronement in heaven. And we just need to be clear here. Those who oppose Christ will be treated to the iron rod. We see it from Genesis 3.15 on. And this will remain true until he comes again. Christ triumphs. The dragon loses. And the angels sang glory to God in the highest. That's an incredible history. You You can't make this stuff up. It's amazing. And I think what remains is to ask, where do you and I fit in this picture? You know, that God paints of this conflict between Christ and Satan. What does all this have to do with us today? You know, as we read that passage, we see clearly that Satan always directs his wrath primarily against the Christ child, whom he wanted to eliminate right at his birth. But as we've seen, every time he does that, every time Satan attacks Christ, he's the loser. So what does he do? He therefore looks for an easier target. What does he do? He attacks the church. He attacks the followers of Christ. And that's the gist of the last verse in Revelation 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's the church. It's the offspring of the woman that obeys God's commands and holds to the testimony of Jesus. Well, let me wrap this up. Uh, I think Revelation 12 is remarkable. We gain so much insight here into how God acts for his people. You know, we see that the prince of darkness is powerful. Leading up to the birth of Christ, he wants to snatch the baby away and devour him. You know, and then just that quick review of redemptive history, which we just went through, we also saw that Satan is also powerful afterward. He's powerful enough to war against those who obey God's commands and who testify about him. Again, it looks like defeat is at hand. There's this enormous seven-headed red dragon on the prowl. 
the woman and her offspring, the church, you and me, we look poor, we look vulnerable. Who's winning here? You know, when it looks like heaven is losing. But here's the lesson. We need to take this home with us today. Satan is on a short leash. Satan's time is short. You know, Revelation 12 reveals that everything is under control. Everything may look chaotic to us, like it's spinning out of control, but dear ones, it's not. God reveals to us here in this wonderful chapter that when it appears that all hell literally has broken loose, heaven is not surprised. There's no panic there. You know, put it another way. You know, when you see all kinds of evil swirling around you, when when things in your life are going south, when you suffer in this world, never forget, God has a plan to use all of it. And not only to use it, but to exploit it. You see, this is what happened that first Christmas. The one who is sovereign over all was born in humble circumstances and he ascended to the throne of God where he is today, calmly looking at the screens. He's moving all the pieces around. He's protecting his church. You know, you, I don't know where you are right now. You may have a tough assignment right now in your life. I don't know what it might be. Maybe you're living in the middle of a anxiously difficult family situation. Maybe an unbelieving spouse, dying parent, child who's getting a divorce, a granddaughter who has turned away from the truth. Maybe your husband or wife or child is deployed in harm's way in the military on the other side of the world. Maybe you're struggling with health problems. You may have to struggle with forgiving a a bitter enemy. I, I don't know where you all are. And all of this may feel to you like an interruption in God's sovereignty. But, dear ones, it is not. God's sovereignty is never short-circuited. God's sovereignty is never interrupted. You know, the picture painted before you here in this wonderful chapter, Revelation 12, it's a, it's a snapshot of history, of actual history. Things which took place in time and space. You know, it's God telling you, look, I'm here. I'm in control. I'm sovereign over the affairs of men. I'm sovereign over your affairs. I'm serving my people, my church. And the gates of hell will never prevail over it. It's all there in my word. From Genesis to Revelation. You know, whenever there's a, I think I put this in your outline. Whenever there's a plane crash, the search begins immediately for the black box. You know, it's the first thing to look for because the black box has all the answers as to what happened. Well, as, as you and I live out our days, you know, we, we're also looking for answers. You know, what just, what just happened? 
Why did what just happened happen to me? <laughs> are there any answers as I face this trial? Where are you, Jesus? My prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. Why don't you answer? Well, he has answered. He does answer. He will answer. You know, in a way, Revelation 12 is the black box of Jesus answering the questions of his people. Jesus says to us in this wonderful chapter, I'd like to show you what happened when it appeared that the universe crashed. The dragon swept stars out of the sky. He waited to devour me at my birth, but he didn't. He couldn't. Instead, I revealed my sovereignty. I revealed my servanthood. You may feel lost right now, but never forget, never forget that you belong to me. And I'm guiding all of history. I'm guiding your history. Even in suffering, when the dragon bites you, and he will, even then I'm in control. You will not crash finally. Dear ones, that is powerful, powerful stuff. And we need to really study, I think, this revelational black box recording before us this morning. Much in the same way the FAA looks carefully at the black boxes before them. We can and we should look and look and look again at this first Christmas story until our faith grows and we see not only what we see, but also what God sees and shares with us about himself and about us as his children. Dear ones, take comfort and encouragement from this this Christmas, that this Christmas, and as you head into the new year. And I pray that God will make it so in your heart this morning. Let me pray. Now, our Father, bless these words to our hearts. May we be faithful and obedient to your word and the gospel of your Son. May we see clearly that Satan is unable to touch us. We keep your commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. May we advance the cause of Christ's kingdom wherever you and your providence decide to place us. May we be unafraid, letting Christ's admonition fear not ring in our ears, knowing that you will bear us up on eagle's wings, knowing that in the desert of our affliction, this earthly sojourn that we're on, you have prepared a place for us, and that you nourish us with the manna of your word. May we always be filled with joy in the Lord, knowing that the glories of heaven await us. And I pray, pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.